0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: That is a fair ball club on a bounce
0: foot race at first line.
1: De La Cruz opposite way. And De La Cruz opposite way for home run number two to
0: first.
1: Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by MLB.com National Content Editor Matt Myers. Today is Friday, June 23rd. We have a lot to get into. We obviously are going to start by talking about the Cincinnati Reds, are on an 11 game win streak but there's going to be a lot to learn about them in the next couple days we have to talk about what's going on with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. who I swear has not yet hit a home run at home this year which is just like the dumbest thing Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, college baseball game from last night LSU versus Wake Forest which is actually super cool and interesting and then Matt just spent his entire week in Arizona uh, at the MOB Draft Combine and I'm very interested to ask him about that of course we have a couple of guys that you should know more about at the end So the first thing is that the Reds never lose. They have won 11 games in a row. My favorite fact about this, the big red machine of the 70s never did this. That's right. The 2023 Reds are better than the big red machine. No further questions. The last time they did that was 1957 when the team won 12. And they did most of it on the road this year's team has in St. Louis, in Kansas City, in Houston, home versus the Rockies. That's super cool. They are now... Boy, I guess I should have looked this up, Matt. Have all five teams been in first place at some point of this division? I guess the Cardinals kind of blew up immediately. But anyway, the Reds are in first place now. And after yesterday's day off, they have a very interesting week or so ahead. They play Atlanta starting tonight. First two games are already sold out, I'm told. They go to Baltimore. They come back and they play the Padres. We are going to know so much more about the
0: Reds in 10 days, I think, than we do now. Are you into the Reds? Are you buying the Reds? Buying the Reds is like fun and interesting, yes. Um, and I mean, it's the, in this division, I think at this point, it's pretty clear they can win win the division, right? And so I think that like, there's like, we shouldn't write them off like the, for that reason, full stop. And I think the other thing, they're a really hard team to evaluate, right? Because you look at their record and you're like, okay, they're 40 and 35, they're now in first place, cool. That said, they also have a negative run differential. Then again, most of that division has a negative run differential. But they don't have the same roster that they had on opening day, right? They've changed they made some significant changes, especially in their lineup. First of all, they 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 like they DFA'd Will Myers this week, who was like their big offseason signing. He's gone. Um they added Matt McLean in May. Since they called up Matt McClain, they're twenty-one and twelve. They called up de la Cruz a couple weeks ago. Since they called him up, they're thirteen and two and twelve and two in games. He starts. So like, no, I don't think they're a nine hundred winning percentage team, to be clear. But it's a different team, so I don't think we, we can evaluate them on their season long, on their season long run differential, right? So I think that's that's sort of what makes them tricky. Usually, teams make changes at the trade deadline, significant changes, and that's why you're like, well, we can't evaluate them; they're different now than they were in the first half. This is a team that is significant. Like, these might be their two best position players that they added in the last six weeks. Yeah, I'm, I'm. so happy that Votto
1: is back because I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago when Ellie De La Cruz came up, and I was like, "All I want is that for all of baseball history to be able to say that Joey Votto and Ellie De La Cruz shared an infield at some point." And this might be the only season it happens. We didn't know if Votto would come back, and he did, and he hit a home run, and it's super cool. The the
0: team, I don't know. Can, can I make Can I make one interjection on that? I shared this with you earlier. I saw this on Twitter from uh, Joel Luckhaupt, which I believe is like a Reds fan on Twitter. He he wrote, barring a rain out, this Reds Brave series will likely see Ellie De La Cruz face AJ Smith Sh- Sh- Shelver, both born in 2002, and Joey Votto face Charlie Morton, both drafted in 2002, which is incredible. Also, as someone who graduated college in 2002, it, it adds a little special uh, bit of uh, personal connection. But you, you mentioning Votto and De La Cruz being teammates made me think of that. And I thought it was a pretty cool tidbit to drop in.
1: Yeah, Joel is uh, he's actually the statistician for the Reds broadcast. So he absolutely knows what he's talking about. I'm trying to figure out what to make of this team. So if you look at June, right, they've been, you know, obviously very good. And it's just, it's weird how they've gotten there. The offense is super fun. They have the fourth most runs in June. They have by far the most stolen bases, which we'll talk about in a minute. The sixth most home runs. It's great. The bullpen has been like sort of good, eighth best ERA this month. That's cool. Although they have a 323 ERA and a 459 FIP and the 5th weakest strikeout rate, but it's it's generally been an effective bullpen. Here's my issue. This month, when you know they've been good, they have a 565 starting rotation ERA. That is the third worst. It is ahead of only the Royals and the Rockies. Part of this is due to injuries, right? Nick has been hurt for a while. Graham Ashcraft has been hurt for a while. They'll be back soon. Hunter Green is now hurt. So here's their rotation. Tell me which of these names I'm making up. Luke Weaver, Ben Lively, Brandon Williamson and Andrew Abbott. The answer is none of them. Those are all real players. I think Ashcraft will be back this weekend. And and Adam,
0: Abbott's like a, a pretty good prospect. He got called up, and has pitched well. So he, it's not. It's not completely. Well, he sort of pitched
1: well. They, I, he, I, he's changed my mind about it. His last time out, he was great. His first three, two or three starts, he gave up like no runs in 17 innings, but almost had as many walks as strikeouts. And I'm like, I'm not buying it. And then, of course, the last time out, he was great. Uh, the, what the bol- The rotation is. Without those guys, I don't think Green is going to be out for too long, but one of the weakest in the game. I think that's where I land on this. I like the offense a lot. like Their fun quotient is like an 80. Uh, The bullpen I have some questions about, but the rotation – it looks bad, like straight up bad. And that's kind of the thing. If you would have asked me at the beginning of this year, hey, what's the strength of this Reds team? I'd be like, hey, I think the lineup stinks, but man, I really like those three starters. I think Green and Ladoga and Ashcraft might be something. It shows what I know, which apparently is absolutely nothing.
0: Well, you know, as they say sometimes, you can't predict baseball. And this seems to be another perfect example of that. Of that phenomena, I mean the bullpen on the season, the bullpen is actually second in the majors in Fangraft's War behind only the Orioles. I mean, so there is there's some stuff that like Alexis Diaz is obviously ridiculously good. Um and then Lucas Sims, Buck Farmer, Ingebo, like there's there's it's it's a, I think it's a solid unit and it it at least gives them something on the pitching side to feel like a little bit better about. But yes, the starting rotation it does feel like it's going to be hard to maintain this, and I will say, even during this eleven-game winning streak, the one reason not to like, you know, you alluded to it before. They played, you know, six games against the Rockies and Royals in that stretch. Um, Rockies, they played the Rockies at home too. So to, to be clear, like Rockies playing the Rockies in Colorado is tough. Playing them on the road is not nearly as tough. Um, so that's six of those eleven wins, and they have also had a bunch of one-one-one-one run wins, an extra inning win in there. So it's like it's not their like. Dominating the competition, but the wins are there. The wins are wins, as you said. We'll, we'll learn a lot about them. And I mean, one thing that's getting a lot of buzz today is because Jason Stark wrote a piece in the Athletic that was about the Reds, Diamondbacks, and I guess it was the Orioles about like three teams that are kind of taking advantage of the new rules and how they have young athletic players. They're stealing a lot, and there is some interesting stuff about the the Reds. Right? The Reds lead the lead the league with stolen bases with seventy eight last year. They stole fifty eight bases all season. Which is kind of incredible. Granted, they rank 18th in stolen base percentage, 78%. So like it's not like they're I mean, the the D backs have like um uh, like a ninety almost like a ninety percent, have almost as like many stolen bases and like a ninety percent success rate. So like they've actually been like super efficient and you know, um a huge uh, net value in it. Too too efficient. If you're stealing ninety percent of the time, steal more <laughs> <laughs> Um, no team in baseball scored more run, scored from second on a single more than the Reds have, sixty-five times. Um, and only the Diamondbacks have taken an extra base on a higher percentage of singles or doubles than the Reds, forty-eight percent of the time. So, like, there is something there, and that's something where players like De La Cruz, who's like literally the fastest guy in baseball, and McLean, just a young athletic player, are they, they change the complexion of the team? It's like, okay, they brought these guys in. And they make them a different team and a better team. So I think that stuff, that is that is pretty interesting and definitely a point in the Reds' favor in terms of like going forward. What this, what kind of team this is.
1: All of that. Did you see La Daily Cruz beat out a ground ball to first base the other day? That is one of the wildest things I think I've ever seen. His ground ball to first base was kind of like on the line, and first baseman turns around, and all of a sudden, Ellie De La Cruz is there. That is one of those things where you're like, "Yeah, I've been watching like 11 million baseball games in my life, and I don't know if I've ever seen that before." And that's like the third time he's done that. He's been up for like three weeks.
0: Yeah, it's. He, he, I mean, the one th- notable thing about De La Cruz, and this is not to rain on the parade because I, didn't, I hadn't noticed this myself until our colleague Andrew Simon pointed out to us his raw numbers are have been fantastic this year right what is he he's he's hitting 321 387 536 but he's actually really hitting the ball on the ground um so there's a little bit of an i don't want to say an illusion thus far but like you know his expected slugging thus far is 351 and he's slugging 536 his his average launch angle is less than one degree um so I i don't think this is a knock on him or his potential it's more like it's He's sort of outplayed his batted ball quality thus far. I imagine he will figure things out and actually start to, um, you know, launch the ball in the air more regularly. It's amazingly given his power, he only has two home runs, but I think that speaks to the point of his, his low launch angle, but definitely something to monitor as the season goes on. I, it suggests to me there could be sort of a, a lull here at some point while he kind of figures things out and then another sort of like takeoff for him.
1: For the record, I don't enjoy being a buzzkill any more than you do, but it is absolutely okay to raid on parades because I am almost positive that a couple weeks ago we said, hey, the Pirates are – look at the Pirates. And you and I are both like, eh, I don't see it. They've lost 13 of their last 15. <laughs> so it's okay. You got to call them as you see them. I, I guess I'll put it this way. I have major concerns about the Reds' rotation, but I think – I think I buy them more right now than I did the Pirates at the time. And I think that's... I mean, they both have like good, interesting young players. I think I'm just so interested in Dele, De La Cruz and the lineup. And I think the Ashcraft's coming back. Green will come back. I don't know that I trust any of these teams, but I don't trust any of the teams in the whole division. So it's like someone has to be first at the end of the year.
0: Yeah, I mean, with the, with the Pirates, I think I said this at the time, it was like, oh, if this was you know, being done on the back of an O'Neill Cruz breakout season and Cabrian Hayes really taking off with the bat, I might feel differently. But Cabrian Hayes, as good of a fielder as he is, still has a 702 OPS. He doesn't really drive the ball. O'Neill Cruz has been hurt. So um, I can't say I'm surprised by what's gone on with the Pirates. But I mean, I think I just have a – honestly, I probably have the most faith in the Brewer just because of the starting pitching. Of being able to sort of just get bulk quality innings and i think over the course of a long season that will probably win out and they if i had to guess they'll win this division with like 85 wins but i mean at this point i'm not going to count out the reds and who knows what's going to happen in the trade deadline
1: you beat me to my closing joke which was going to be check back in two weeks and we talk about how red hot the milwaukee brewers are because it seems like the torch is just going to keep being passed in this division we'll take a quick break we'll be back on the mlb.com ballpark dimensions podcast We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrella and Matt Myers. Each week, we have our three batter minimum. We pick three interesting topics of the week. The first one is maybe not a happy one for fans north of the border. Did you know, and this is true as of at least this second, they play a home game in like five hours from when we're recording. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has yet to hit a home run at home this year. He has nine home runs on the road, zero home runs in Rogers Center. There are 371 players this year who have hit at least one home run. In their home ballpark. 371. That is a group which does not include Vladimir Guerrero Jr., which I keep repeating because I can't believe it's true. How is that even possible? I will give one minor caveat. Because the Blue Jays did renovations to their ballpark, they started the year with a long road trip. They've actually played 12 more road games than they have home games. So it's certainly not an even split. But even so, he's had 132 home plate appearances this year. It's been a weird season for him overall. He, He has. His OPS, uh, <laughs> listen, he was second in slugging, or second in, in the MVP race two years ago, right? And his OPS was over 1,000 that year. It is 767 this year. And if you were to say he's you know, declined in slugging, declined in all of this, you'd be like, oh, I guess it's, I guess he's not hitting the ball that hard. No. 98th percent in hard hit rate. He has the exact same hard hit rate he did when he was second in the MVP in 2021. The other thing you would say is, well, when he first came up, he just hit it hard into the ground. I bet you he's doing that again. No. His ground ball rate is actually less than last year. Strikeouts haven't changed. Walk rate hasn't changed. Like, these are all the big blinking red signs of it's gonna be okay. And yet here we are almost to July and it hasn't been okay. It's an incredibly frustrating season for one of baseball's most talented do hitters.
0: It reminds me a little bit of what we saw with Juan Soto like from the end of last year, to the earlier part of this year, where it was like the indicators were all there and it was kind of just a matter of time before he got it going and wanted sort of really started to get it going of late. So it was finally like, okay, he's hitting the ball well. It's finally working for him. In some ways, the strangest thing about Carrero's career, though, is that he really only has the one great year, right? Obviously, he was the hyped number one overall prospect. Like, oh, my God, this, you know, this is going to be the next great hitter. His rookie year, he was – you know, okay, you know, good for a rookie, 772 OPS. Then there was the 2020 season, we'll kind of throw it out the window. 2021 was like his off the charts year, would have won MVP if not for Otani. You know, he probably wins MVP in like, you know, 98 out of a hundred seasons with the year he had when he hit 311, 401, 601 with 48 homers and 111 RBIs. Like that was what we were waiting for. But then last year he slugged 480, right? He, he only has one season in his career, which he has slugged above 500. So, like, for all the talk of him being like the great young power hitter, which he looks like he is, and the bat ball is there, it is kind of strange that the results haven't really matched the quality of the contact. I, I would be bullish on it turning around this year, just because all the ind- indicators are like flashing, like this is going to happen. Um, all like, if you go to a Savant page, basically every indicator matches exactly, maps almost exactly to 2021, maybe a little bit less, but like it's very like bright red on like XBA, X slugging. X weight on base, hard hit rate. It's like, okay, this is going to happen. But man, it's it's wild that it has not.
1: So you're saying he's a bust is what I'm getting out of this. Thank you. Now, there's, there's a certain segment of Blue Jays fans who will point to what you just said. And, um, you know, in 2021, they played in multiple different home ballparks. So he crushed it in Dunedin and he crushed it in Buffalo. And he's pretty good in Toronto, but not the same. And they point to that like he hasn't hit in Toronto. Here's the thing. We have a metric called barrels, which you've probably heard of. And it's basically the perfect combination of exit velocity and launch angle, right? You need both of them, not just one, if you really want to be successful. And he is kind of barreling the ball up uh, about the same as he ever has, but there's a really interesting number I want to share with you. If you look at the past four seasons and you look at his barrels, he has had uh, you know between 380 and 390 feet of distance every single year consistently. This year, 356. So even when he's making this perfect, perfect uh, contact, the distance is down with like dozens of feet. And it's actually worse than that. I looked this up. Since 2015, you look at every season where there's a player who has had at least 25 barrels. So we're talking 934 seasons. And if you look, where does 356 feet of distance on your barrel rank out of 934 seasons? 933rd, which is the dumbest thing. Now, why would that happen? Right? I think this is going to be a little deeper than we can we can probably look up right now. But my theory is this: I think he hits the ball so hard that he's like hitting knuckleballs. I think is what's happening here. I think he's getting some top spin on it or side spin, or not enough backspin, right? Because he's hitting it hard. There's no doubt about that. Whatever he's doing, it's just it's sucking the distance out of it, and he ends up hitting these balls that look like absolute lasers off the bat, and then like, you know, sail southward into the left fielder's glove. I, I would rather that I think that he's not hitting the ball hard. He looks terrible because he looks fine. I think this is something that can be sorted out. But it's weird. This is not something we've usually seen before where it's like, yeah, he's killing it. The ball's just not going anywhere, but like just for him.
0: Yeah, I would I would love for someone smarter about swing mechanics to kind of dive into this. But that's what my thought would be, that there's maybe like a little more top hand than usual. So he's kind of get turning over the ball a little bit, getting that top spin on it, maybe not getting the distance. And this is also a good reminder of why launch angle and exit velocity – Not all exit velocities and launch angles are created the same because, like, the bat can, can, the ball can leave the bat at a certain trajectory, but depending on how you finish your swing, the angle, like, the, the way in which you make contact and finish your swing has a lot to say about how far the ball eventually travels. And this seems to be one of those one of those cases. But wow, that's that's pretty interesting. Good stuff, Mike.
1: Oh, good stuff, Mike. Not good stuff for the Blue Jays, who you know, <laughs>
0: clearly need him to hit. Now, they're playing
1: the, the uh, A's this weekend, and the A's have kind of collapsed since they had that nice winning streak, and the pitching was never very good. If he doesn't get on the board uh, at home by the end of June, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Like You, you cannot have Vlad Jr. going an entire almost first half uh, without a home home run. Especially, they made the changes to the ballpark. And we all thought that they were going to be more home run friendly, and it just hasn't happened. There's going to be a series where he just goes off and hits like five home runs in 12 plate appearances or whatever. All right, our second topic. We don't talk about college baseball that much on this show, but last night's game uh, was so interesting with a couple of guys you may see very soon uh, that it felt worthwhile. LSU versus Wake Forest last year in the College World Series. Uh, most interesting because of the pitching matchup was two of the three top college pitchers, Paul Skeens versus Rhett Lauder. Uh, J.J. Cooper from Baseball America actually did some research on this, and he came away with, on paper, this is basically either the best college World Series pitching matchup of all time or the best since 1976, and the game turned out to totally live up to expectations. Scoreless into extra innings, LSU won 2-0 in 11 on a walk-off home run from Tommy White, maybe better known as Tommy Tanks, which is an objectively badass nickname, especially for a guy who hits walk-off homers. Um, but if you watch the pitchers, like absolute filth and dominance, and I it made me think two things, right? One is, well, the future of baseball is in great hands. If like these guys are pitching like this, and if you are a batter, you are doomed. You will if that's what the next wave of pitching looks like, good luck. It's never gonna happen again. Uh, Paul Skeens may be the number one pick in the draft at worst top two it's going to be him or dylan cruz most likely his teammate at lsu going to the pirates and the question here matt that i think we both have is this guy is obviously a college pitcher not a high schooler he is dominating his level should he or could he be in the majors later this year if he ends up on a team that's potentially in uh, the playoff picture although i will point out the pirates recent skid may have taken them out of that so that changes that equation too
0: well, the consensus sure seems to be that he could pitch in the majors right now. And if you watch him, well, not necessarily being a professionally trained scout, I've watched enough pitchers and amateur pitchers to feel like, yeah, it seems to be the case. I mean, he basically sits at 100 miles an hour with his fastball. He threw one or two changeups in the game last night that kind of blew me away, of like how good they were. And there's some questions about like the sh- the shape of his fastball and that whether or not pro hitters will be as fooled by it. But I imagine that's one of those things that with some professional coaching. And tweaking can can be uh, can be taken care of. I mean, I think this is one of like the. I mean, there's there's two things that I'm wondering about: is whether or not A he could pitch in the majors, and also B, just like how do you, if you're a team, how do you view drafting a pitcher like this in the draft? Just I mean, like you hate to be a downer, but it's like oh, pitchers like this more often than not end up getting hurt. So it's like, do I want to invest this much of my you know, time and future in a player who there's a very good chance will miss like a year and a half because like that's often what happens with pitchers who throw who test the limits of what is possible with how how hard a human can throw. I mean, I feel like Garrett Cole's kind of like the one guy of this class who has essentially avoided this fate. Um Justin Verlander probably avoided it for most of his career and then got had some injury troubles later in his career. But like you look at the list, it's pretty frightening I guess. But, like, I mean, to the, to the first question, I want the first question is I think he pitches the majors now. It's kind of a bummer they probably won't. I think the biggest reason you, to be most skeptical is that, like, he does have to adjust to pitching on a pro schedule. I think that is a legitimate difference that, like, people kind of take for granted sometimes. Like, in college, you pitch um, every six days, maybe every seven days. So, for him to go into a pennant race, let's say he fell number four for the Rangers for signability reasons, and the Rangers were like, we can use this guy in the race. I'm not sure you can have him rolled out every five days. Maybe he could be like a bullpen guy, but like then you screwing with his development. It's an interesting question. Um, I don't think I don't think he's going to fall the Rangers. So I think it's the Pirates or the Nationals or the Tigers where this is kind of a non-issue. Um, so then it becomes more of a question of like, well, how do you develop him? Do you take take go slow? But then if you go too slow, maybe you, like he's not built up enough and he's never p- trained to throw lots of innings. So that's what's like, the challenge of trying to figure out how to develop these guys is so is so tricky and like there's not really a right answer because no matter how often you quote unquote baby these guys they still seem to get hurt and i don't really know how you do it. i kind of wish i didn't have to make the choice i'd almost wish that someone took them before me so i could just be like well someone else took skeins i guess i gotta take cruz or or white langford or someone else
1: no risk no reward this is why you're not running a major league drafter right now i I think this is an important reminder of how different the baseball draft is from, let's say, the NFL draft, right? Because in the NFL draft, a lot of it is position based. You might be like, well, I'm set at quarterback, so I'm not going to take this guy. I really need a linebacker, right? And in baseball, because you go to the minors and you know you need lots of pitchers, it's usually just take the best player available. Don't worry about his position. That will sort itself out. And I think that's still true. But I also think if you're looking at the pirates and you're thinking like well what do we need over the next couple years if we think this is like the start of our window it kind of feels like you need an arm more than a bat right because uh they, they just promoted henry davis who's a catcher who's the number one overall pick a couple years ago uh they have andy rodriguez who is a highly rated catcher who's almost ready they i think i saw just this morning are promoting nick gonzalez who's a middle infielder who was a top draft picker there's a couple of years ago it's not to say they don't have pitchers in the system they do uh but you know it it, it seems to be like a bat heavier group of players and even if you look at the major league system, they signed Brian Reynolds, who's going to be there for a while. Mitch Keller, you know, looks like he's having a breakout, but they can still use help in the rotation. If you're looking at this over the next three years, I feel like the pitcher helps them more than the batter does. I'm not sure that's what should define it. And I think, you know, that depends on if they think they're ready to win soonish, which I feel like they think they are. I'm not sure if I agree, but that feels like where we are.
0: Well, that's why I think it's, it is more interesting if he ends up on the Pirates than on the nationals or tigers because i think the nationals and tigers are both probably especially the nationals see themselves as like two or three years away from like starting to compete again the tigers probably don't want to admit that but it's probably true as well so if he ends up on one of those teams because of like the way service time works and all that there's like not really an incentive to rush him that said like there's a good chance that paul Skeens, as of like next year after one pro spring training will be about as good as he's ever going to be right and like you're as you you should be incentivized if you think you're going to be good to get him on the field, get him the majors as quickly as possible um, for all the reasons mentioned before. So I think that that's why in some sense it's most interesting if it's in the Pirates because they go to next year being like, hey, we think we can win this division. And if so, like this guy gives us the best chance to do it. Whereas like if he ends up in the Nationals, we're probably not going to see him for a couple of years because they'll slow play it because they don't really want to add him to a – 70 win club and then also risk him getting hurt in the process and you know missing the time when he could be healthy and helping them trying to win win a division
1: yeah i think the point about him may maybe being at or near as good as he'll ever be right now is interesting because he's he's thrown a lot right so he threw 120 pitchers or more in a game three times this month alone and nobody in the majors has done it even once And I think that goes into a larger conversation about, you know, the culture of college baseball and the motivations of coaches and whether guys are worked too hard. I think it's better than it used to be, right? I think 20 years ago, you'd hear these horror stories of he threw 180 pitches and then came back in relief two days later. And we don't do that anymore. But that is a consideration. You know, he's young, but he's not without some miles on his arm. He, I don't, let me ask you this if he gets to the majors this year, it will probably be after having pitched in the minors at least a little bit to adjust right it used to be i don't want to say common but more often that you'd have players go straight from amateur to the majors without playing in the minors um most recently was garrett crochet but that barely counts because it was 2020 there was no minor league season for him to go to this happened you know years ago in the 70s i think it was like a weird trend i would be surprised if that happens this year he's got to at least show up in i don't know bradenton or wherever right
0: I think it's – yeah, I would think it's pretty – I think it's more like he doesn't pitch at all in pro ball this year than he pitches in the majors. I think there's a good chance he gets shut down. I mean, he, he did pitch 120 pitches last night. I will say, like, again, these guys pitch on much more rest than, than major league pitchers do, so I think that has to be a factor when you think of their pitch counts. He also did over eight innings, which, you know, is not like nothing, but sometimes you see pitchers in the majors throw like 110 pitches over five innings, which to me is like a way more arduous uh, physical activity than – over eight innings it was kind of a weird line it was eight innings nine strikeouts two hits and one walk and it's almost like it's shocking with that line that it went to 120 to 20 20 plus pitches because it feels like he was pretty there was a lot of deep counts a lot of foul balls honestly I'm not sure what's more more impressive about Paul Skeen's stats this year we haven't even talked about Rhett Lauder who was really good last night and actually was taken out after 88 pitches through seven innings which also which surprised me almost just as much um as Skeen's 120 Skeens on the season 122 or third two-thirds innings pitched 209 strikeouts in the sec which is very impressive but only 20 walks i'm not sure what is more impressive that he struck out 209 in 123 innings or only walked 20 that is a more than a better than 10 to one strikeout to walk ratio in the best college division college conference that suggests to me that's like that shows a level of polish that most college pitchers do not have
1: yeah, I'll be the first to admit I am not an expert on amateur ball, but from everyone who I know and follow who does, you know, proclaim to be an expert, this was like the most star-studded college world series that they can remember. Like the draft is going to be super interesting cuz you're going to have five or six guys who could potentially be the number one pick in other years like that's how loaded it is which is super cool speaking of amateur ball matt you just spent most of a week in arizona at chase field at the mlb draft combine um, which is a, a relatively new thing and tell us about it like what did you see there like what did you do what went on
0: yeah i mean for, for those who aren't familiar i mean basically mlb three years ago so this is the third time we've done it Organize a draft combine similar to what the NFL has done for years where they invite the top prospects to come and, you know, take batting practice. You know, the position players can take batting practice. They can um, can do infield and outfield. The pitchers pitch. Um, There's also a strength and conditioning um, testing portion of it. And there's also a medical portion of it, which in some ways is the most significant because if you get your physical, your your medical physical taken at the combine – what that means is that if a team drafts you, they cannot offer you anything less than seventy-five percent of the draft slot amount. So it's basically it's allows protects players to basically say, look, if you come to the combine and get your medical, medical taken, then that means that like. Everything's above the board, and teams can't then say, "Oh, well, like we didn't like the medical, so like we're going to lowball you on the bonus offer." So, I think that's a really uh, important change that's 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 made in the last couple of years. That's come with this. Now, not everyone takes the physical, at the, the the medical at the at the combine. Um, some players come and just do the, the interviews with the teams. That's another big part of it. Is a lot of players just come, especially the top top prospects. They'll come, and if they feel like they don't, they only have anything. If they feel like they have nothing to gain from taking BP. Um, they may just come and meet with teams and do the interviews and sort of do the meet and greet. They also did media. So that was cool from a media perspective of getting to, you know, chat with and, uh, see firsthand some of these, like some of the top prospects, um, in the draft, like Max Clark, who's the top high school outfielder in the draft. He was there, but he did not do the on-field stuff, but he did the media stuff. So you get to kind of get a feel for, for who, who the player is. I thought it was really interesting. Um, to be able to see a lot of these players firsthand. It really gives you a feel for who they are. Like I'll give you a perfect example. Um, Noble Meyer is a tall, right right-handed uh, pitching prospect from Oregon, high school kid, probably the top high school pitcher in the draft. And then you see him in person. And like, you know, there's a, there's a, from when I was a kid, I don't know if you saw this, there was a famous article, in sports illustrated about mario Rivera, and it was kind of like what makes him so special And it was like his fingers he has these really long fingers these huge hands you don't even realize how big his hands is and, th- and that hands are and that's like how he's able to get this movement on his pitch like noble meyer had like the largest hands i've ever seen so it's like i now have this like vivid picture of this kid it's like okay now I see he's thrown 100 miles per hour in games and you're like okay this is cool this is interesting so also what i also loved about this kid is that um as i said they do the players do interviews interviews with teams they're kind of like job interviews now most of the players who were there just kind of wear the like draft combine like polo shirt and shorts that they're like the the gear they get but like i guess meyer wanted to treat it kind of like a job interview so he was you know he was wearing like khakis and like a button-down shirt which i thought was, which i kind of appreciated as well um but you know, there's other things that you pick up while you're there i mean you know some of these, some of these kids are just like so imposing and impressive. You know, Bryce Eldridge is one of the top high school hitters. You see him, and you're like, oh wow! Like this, I, I, I get it. You know, there's just something about you. You 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 instantly understand why this kid is a top prospect. You watch some of these kids take BP. There was one player who's I think you know Eric Patante, who's a shortstop from California, left handed hitter, and he had. I mean, it's batting practice, but you're watching and like. He's just like flick of the wrist, hitting them over the right field fence. So it's like instantly you have a picture of this kid like, okay, um, this is impressive. Uh, there was a, a outfielder, actually a, a catcher slash outfielder from San Diego State, Cole Carrig, who threw 102 miles an hour from the outfield in the outfield drills. So like there's there's a lot you can learn from being there. It's also, I mean, they open it up to fans. I hope in the future more fans come because like the kids can get right down on the field and get selfies and autographs and like. Meet these kids. Um, our colleague Jesse Sanchez, his kids came. They they each caught three home runs in batting practice just from like going out. So it's, it's like it's a cool event, and I think that has a lot of potential for growth um, as the years goes on, and players start to appreciate what can be gained from going, um, and maybe some of the fans who are in the area get to get to appreciate it as well.
1: That's cool. I did not know it was a defense until you just said it right there. So that is super cool. Like if I wanted, I mean, you know, my son is a baseball nut. If I lived around there, I'd be like, hey, do you want to go sit in the bleachers and just catch a whole bunch of batting practice home runs? You'd be like, yeah. Um, do you think it it uh, will hurt the guys who were at the College World Series and weren't able to be there to participate because they were obviously, you know, playing in the World Series?
0: I mean, I think that for the the, the the teams in the College World Series have been pretty heavily scattered, and so I think that those guys aren't necessarily hurt from that perspective. I mean, it was a, kind of a bummer because I think Paul Skeens would have come if LSU didn't advance, but then obviously, you know, if uh, for him, I'm sure he's excited that LSU has LSU did advance, so he could possibly win win the College World Series. There also is like a, a supplemental event where, where where players can go and do the interview and the medical process. After the fact, just so they can get that same protections that I was talking about in terms of like getting the physical taken um, by the uh, by the MLB personnel.
1: Yeah, no, this makes a lot of sense. I'm reading here that uh, 323 players accepted invitations to go to the event, and that includes 169 members of the Pipeline Draft top 200. And obviously, some of those who weren't there were playing in the College World Series because that's rather right on the top 200. This is cool. I think this is something that is long overdue it's probably something baseball didn't do well enough like in years past i think everybody remembers kind of like the brady aiken situation which are always trying to avoid and um if some of these guys maybe get Get their names in front of teams uh, a little quicker than they could just from scouting the video. Um, I remember reading a couple years ago. I think it was Henry Davis who was the number one overall pick in the draft. He said it was great because he actually got to like talk to the teams and meet them as people. You know, before they actually like you're essentially getting into a marriage. (laughs) Like you're making the draft pick, right? Like let's date for a little bit. We can actually get to know each other and then see if this is going to be a good fit. Uh, So that's cool. I'm glad you got to see that. I'm uh, I'm a little bit jealous about that. We will take a break. We'll be back. We always have a couple of guys
0: you need to know a little bit more. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Each week, Matt and I like to highlight some under-the-radar guys you should know a little bit more about. My guy plays for the San Francisco Giants, and he is currently seventh in the National League in wins above replacement. He is Tyro Estrada, 17 steals, a 120 OPS plus, and 10 outs above average at second base. I don't know if he's going to make the all-star game because Luis Arise is going to be the starter, but you know he deserves it. There's a lot of moving pieces. Every team needs a rep. I don't know if he'll make it, but he, sh- he should. right? He's having a great year, and he's got a really interesting and somewhat sad backstory on how he got here. So... He was drafted, excuse me, not drafted, signed by the Yankees back in 2012 as an international free agent out of Venezuela. Made the minor league all-star team in 2015 in single A and 2017 in double A. Pipeline had him as the Yankees' number eight prospect after the 2017 season, and he was expected to compete for the second base job with Glaber Torres and Tyler Wade. Fortunately, in January of 2018, he was at home in Venezuela. He was out for a meal with his wife. There was a robbery attempt. He was shot in the right hip, Fortunately, it was not life-threatening and underwent surgery because parts of his clothing were lodged inside his leg, but they couldn't get the bullet out. So he played with it, still inside his leg for parts of 2018. Later on, it was removed. Obviously, questions about how it would affect his career, but certainly fortunate that it wasn't anything more serious than that. Got to the Yankees in 2019, played 61 games there in 2019 and 20. Not super impressive, but he got there. And then they DFA'd him in April of 2021 for, wait for it. Rugnet Odor, they traded him to the Giants for cash. The last two years was kind of a multi positional type, 107 OPS plus. But what the Giants did, and this is something they've, done, they've been really good at, right, is finding guys who were undervalued elsewhere. Mike Yastrzemski is probably the biggest name there. Uh, JD Davis is having a great year. Like, this is something that the Farhan Zaidi does very well, and they've done it a bunch of times over the year. They kept him when they kind of had a decision to make him or Mauricio Dubon, who was once a highly regarded prospect, and he's been okay for Houston, but they kept Estrada. All of a sudden, he's one of the best second basemen in all of baseball, and it's good for the Giants and maybe less good for the Yankees. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jorge Mateo, who was a former Yankee prospect who has flourished in Baltimore. I fully expect we're going to be talking about Estevan Floreal having a great year for the 2025 Brewers or whatever, because that's happened a couple of times. I'm not sure what that's about. But Estrada is probably someone you don't think about at all. He should be an all-star this year. I don't know if he will be, but he would be on my ballot.
0: Yeah, your point about the Giants is very well taken. That has like been their thing, and was a huge part of their success two years ago when they won what was it, 107 games? Yeah, a lot. Um, another name I throw in there is Lamont Wade, who's having a huge year for them this year yes. and was very good again last year. So it's like this is a this is very much a thing, a thing that they they do. Um, speaking of guys who are in the National League West and needed a new opportunity <laughs> elsewhere. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about Arizona Diamondbacks relief pitcher Scott McGuff, who over the la- last 30 days has the highest fan war of all relief pitchers in baseball, which is hard to believe, especially considering this is a guy who has not pitched in the majors since 2015, right? Um, so let, let's tell you a little about, uh about the performance uh, in the last month. In the last month, he has not allowed a nerd run in 15 and a third innings pitched. On the season, he has 47 strikeouts and 12 walks in 39s and two thirds innings pitched. Compare that to his first MLB exposure in 2015 with the Marlins. He allowed seven runs in six and two thirds innings with four walks, four, stri- four strikeouts, and 12 hits allowed, and was ceremoniously sent back to the minors, his transaction log is kind of crazy. He was originally drafted at a a high school in Pittsburgh by the Pirates in 2008. So local boy, that was like in the 40 something round. He did not sign, he went to Oregon State, which at the time did not, went to Oregon, which at the time did not have a baseball team. They brought back baseball in 2009. He was part of the first Oregon team. They they hadn't had a team for however many years. I I don't know exactly. Ended up being drafted by the Dodgers in the fifth round in 2011. At the trade deadline in 2012, (laughs) He was traded along with Nathan Ivaldi to the Marlins for Randy Choate and Hanley Ramirez. This guy was once traded for Hanley Ramirez. He was in the Marlins for a few years. As mentioned, he debuted with them, was uh, grabbed off waivers by the Orioles in 2016, became a free agent, signed with the Rockies, became a free agent, and then... Get this, November of 2018, he signs, re-signs to the Rockies as a free agent, and then a month later, I don't know what happened between November and December of 2018, he was released by the Rockies. So then, after all that, he goes to Japan, he signs with the Yakult Swallows, pitched there for four years, and in that time, he learned a split-fingered fastball, which is a much more popular pitch in, in Japan, and has transformed his career. He was a very effective relief pitcher in Japan over those four years. And this past winter, he signed a two-year deal that got very little attention. Suddenly, like, the the D-backs were signing a 33-year-old reliever who'd been out of the majors for four years, or actually seven years if you go back to 2015, to a two-year deal. Um, Mike Hazen said after the signing, guys go over there, Mike Hazen being the Diamondbacks' uh, GM, uh, guys go over there and do better. Just through pure opportunity. In this case, we felt like he developed a splitter, and that was interesting for us. Sure enough, that splitter is now a pitch he throws more than forty percent of the time. He actually talked about when he first got back here, the first two weeks of the season, he was terrible. Um, in the, his first seven appearances, he allowed three homers and five runs in four and two thirds innings. And even talked about how like adjusting to American uh, hitters in the majors was different was was t- tough coming from Japan because he said in Japan way more contact hitters, but way fewer guys who can beat you with homers. So I was still pitching with the same mentality I had in Japan, and guys were hitting homers off me. So he's like, i had to really make an adjustment to how I pitched and how I attacked hitters. Since those first two weeks of the season, those seven games, he has allowed a 369 OPS. That's on base plus slugging in 35 innings pitch. The guy has been absolutely incredible. Um, a great success story for the, for the D-backs, who also I was reminded in doing research about him, um, got Merrill Kelly from Korea. So clearly he's been, and he's pitching great for them this year, two nine zero ERA. So clearly their their uh, a- a- Asian scouting is is doing quite well. Asian pro scouting is doing quite well for them this season.
1: I was uh, furiously googling while you were talking, and I believe that the Rockies let him go so he could pursue an opportunity in uh, overseas, which I guess makes sense because you know, sometimes you can make there you go make more money doing that. I I love the story of a guy who comes back with a new pitch, and it really. This stood out to me when we were watching the World Baseball Classic. Like all of the good Japanese pitchers have split finger fastballs. I love a good splitter guy. Major leaguers don't throw enough split fingers. We we need to see like a three times increase in split finger usage in the next two years. Like next, that should be the next. What's the next sweeper? Go back to the splitter, right? You see guys like this all the time. It's kind of a myth that it increases injury. Like it just doesn't seem to. More splitters, more splitters, more splitters.
0: It's interesting timing, as as uh, you may may have seen that Roger Craig, the former um, Giants manager, passed away um, last week. And Roger Craig was 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 credited with like this spl- this splitter revolution that happened in the majors in like the nineteen eighties when like was it Bruce Sutter and Mike Scott and a few other guys like became dominant pitchers because of the splitter and then it kind of d- disappeared i guess there's probably is it is it because of the the belief that it caused injury is that the these the kind of the belief that that's why the pitch went away
1: yeah as far as i understand i don't think there's any real science to that i think some guys have tried it and you know you got to spread your fingers so far apart that they probably have felt pain it's not something for everybody but i feel like it should be something for more guys uh because it's a very very good pitch if you can use it effectively i'm thinking of like felix bautista you know because his is amazing all right that was a good one i like wow scott mcguff hanley ramirez talk on a podcast in the year 2023 also nathan avaldi is still out there having an incredible season right now that's amazing that's also cool too that'll do it for this week's podcast don't miss an episode by subscribing on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever your podcast if you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions leave us a rating and a review Thank you for listening to the Block Park Dimensions podcast. See you next week.